It was bound to happen at some point. After 194 episodes of new content every week for you, our lovely listener, we have hit a snag and need to rerun one of our many favorite episodes. The snag? Chris has caught COVID and the recovery has taken longer than anticipated. I'm sure you wish Chris a full and healthy recovery, much like I do. The episode? Our interview with the infamous C.J. Vanston. Without further ado, let's roll it as episode 195. Of inside the recording studio, I am Jody Whitesides, and with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Elstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing good, Jody. I'm doing very well. I'm uh, very excited today because we get to talk to a very accomplished, amazing musician and producer, and everything by the name of Jeffrey C.J. Vanston. So, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. It's very rare I hear somebody use my first name. So, <laughs> well, it I is Jeffrey. <laughs> okay. You know, I wasn't sure if you wanted to go by Jeffrey or if you wanted us to call you CJ, so. Well, I should probably just open with telling you how I got the name CJ. There you go. I didn't know the answer to this, so go ahead. Okay, well, I mean, this is a good opener, I think, uh, for all people that wonder, all two of you. I was 17, had a scholarship to college. I was a classical piano player when I was 12 or 13. I was competing and was supposed to go to college for classical piano, which I did not want to do. <laughs> I was basically smoking weed and, and playing Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. In the, at home. <laughs> there you go. By the way, in an all-white town in Michigan called Williamston, and I snuck into a club and I saw an all-black 10-piece horn band called SunQuest, and it blew my mind. So that summer, while I'm waiting to go to college, I bought all the funk records I could and started woodshedding all that stuff and learning all the, the, the Commodores, Parliament, Isley Brothers, Ohio Players, all that stuff. Nice. And so later that summer, and the lead singer, by the way, was just like this. He was so magnetic and charismatic. And it looked like he was chiseled out of mahogany. He was just, <laughs> a, just amazing. You know, built like a linebacker, just a face of a model and a voice like Maurice White. Incredible. So later that summer, I'm playing in my jazz trio. And I look out, all white crowd, of course. And there's one brother at the back bar, and it's the lead singer from SunQuest. Oh, nice. Nice. Shit. This is the first time a brother has ever checked me out, man. <laughs> so I click on my Mutron, on my roads. I do all my shit. Do all the, Get done. He's gone. Oh. And I'm like, who would walk out while I was doing it? I'm so pissed <laughs> off. So I go to walk off the stage like, fuck this, man. Walked off the stage. He's standing right there with his face right in front of me. And he goes, y'all playing with us now. <laughs> nice. There you go. <laughs> so I blew off college. My dad had bought me a Buick Skylark for graduation. Mm. Immediately sold it, bought a Mini Moog. <laughs> got on a yellow school bus with 10 brothers who I'd never even spent any time with, yeah. and just hit the chitlin circuit with these guys. So, long story, but uh, there was two other Jeffs in the band. By the way, his name was Jeff Williams. Okay. He's not with us anymore, and I wish he was, because he was one of my biggest influences. He was a genius. Uh, anyway, there were two other Jeffs. Well, Jeff, one, was the slowest driver in the world. So back then, there was a race driver named, <laughs> there was a race driver named A.J. Foyt. Yeah, back well, in I my day. Oh, well, yeah. 
You read about it in the history books. Mm -hmm. And he won Dindy four times or whatever. So he's AJ, BJ, Black Jeff. Okay. <laughs> Caucasian Jeff. Caucasian Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's it. Yeah. That's so an awesome story. I tried to get rid of it. I tried to shake it. But, you know, once the brothers give you a nickname, it's done, man. So sticks. on the Spinal Tap records, they list me as Caucasian Jeffrey Vanston. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. All right. That's my opener uh, anyway. You know, the funny thing is, is that I have a similar story where I was courting Taylor guitars to get an endorsement. And I was playing at NAMM. And as I'm playing... Bob Bourbonis, who was the A&R guy at the time, he did the same thing. He came up, watched about 30 seconds of my set and walked off. <laughs> and I thought, Jesus, I guess I'm not getting anything done. And as soon as I was done, he walked over and got right in and there's this, what do you need? So it, wow. yeah, it's it, yeah. not the same as being taken on the road by <laughs> a nice band, but it was kind of a similar you know thing. the feeling of yeah that, i know uh, the feeling of like somebody walks off while you're playing it's like what the hell did i do what did i do wrong well <laughs> my first session with jeff percaro actually it was my only live session with jeff percaro i had played on a total record mm. because greg ladani was producing uh, he and i were doing a dolly parton movie the whole soundtrack and he was producing toto at the same time and they heard some of the tracks they go who the hell is that on keyboards Little do they know, I'm a scholar of David Page and Steve Percaro, oh, and I chose a path to go right down the middle of those two guys. David being the meat and potatoes, jazz, New Orleans, bluesy songwriter, and Steve the scientist, mad scientist with the modular sense. So I kind of crafted myself right down the middle. And Page is all about parts, you know. Really, he's the greatest at great piano parts. You listen to some of the Pointer Sister records and all the stuff he did. Anyway, so I played on a total record, and I, they stopped by, and I'd met Jeff a couple times and hung out with him. But uh, then it was a David Crosby record that Don Was was producing, and I was sitting at the piano out in the room with the drums. They wanted a real kind of raw recording. And I look, and I go, Who's, whose drums are those? And they go, oh, those are Jeff's. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm playing with Jeff today? Yeah. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> holy shit and so the door opens up of course he's got a cigarette and he looks over and he goes cj fucking vanston let's see what all the fuss is about and i'm like dude no oh, don't do this to me what don't. kind of pressure what are you doing no no and i remember the intro was like 16 bars of piano and i said you want this rubato and they said no we want it right in time i said well is there a click? No, we're not using any click. Oof. So I got to play in time with Jeff sitting right there to my left, <laughs> oh. right to my left. But I had spent 10 years in the studio doing jingles in Chicago. And I'm talking five, 6,000 jingles with click in my ear at seven in the morning. Sure. So my time is one of my, there's not a lot I'll brag about. I got great time. There you go. So count the tune off. We play, and I do the whole intro. Then he comes in, and I look over, and he's kind of jazz facing me. Gene Krupa. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we get into this take, and he has no idea what, again, what a scholar I am of Page. You know, so I'm playing this kind of Page parts and stuff, and he's looking at me like, well, you know, who the hell are you? That kind of face. And we go through this track, and it's nailed. First time through, it's nailed. And so we get done, and my heart's pounding out of my chest. Like it was, I couldn't have played it better. And there's Jeff. He spins around on his drum throne, lights up a cigarette, walks around, and walks right by me and out the door. Oh. 
<laughs> doesn't say a word. And I'm sitting there going, what? I just can't believe it. And I'm sitting there just crestfallen, just staring at the staring at my shoes. And all of a sudden, the door kicks open. Ah! <laughs> and he comes in and grabs me and gives me this big hug. He goes, man, that was fucking awesome. Come on, let's go listen. So we go in the control room. And I always stand behind the console facing the mixer. I like having the speakers there. Sure. And Jeff's standing there. I said, what are you doing here? He goes, this is where I always listen, man. I said, dude, me too. Wow, that's cool. So they do the playback. He said, one of those Casio watches with like the thousand <laughs> little buttons on it, right? right? He pulls it off and he's, bang, every downbeat, he's hitting it. I go, what are you doing? He goes, checking you out, man. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I go, how am I doing? He goes, I've been doing this for years. That's the closest anybody's gotten. You're, you're within a tenth of a second on everything. He goes, I want to smoke a joint? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Went outside, smoked a joint. <laughs> that was it. Wow. So yeah, that was the uh Well, how do you get from doing the tour with the 11 brothers or whatever on that band to going to playing in the studio with Picaro? Wow. Well, it's interesting because <clears throat> I moved out here to do uh, uh, Richard Marx's record. Right Here Waiting was the big hit mm -hmm. that I did. That's my demo, actually. And uh, Luke was on some of those sessions. So we were like, again, he didn't know what a scholar I was of Patient for Carl. So we were like peanut butter and chocolate playing together. So he decided to do a solo record, his first one. And uh, Richard wrote a song on it and got me on that record. And it was called Swear Your Love. So through the years started, and I'm going to get back to that. But Luke and I uh, became friends and started playing together. And finally... He says, man, I'm, I'm going to do a solo record. Why don't you, let's write some songs and, and plan it. Yeah, cool. So we're working together and we just work together. Like it's, it's nuts how fast it goes, how quick it goes. We think of the same voicings and all this shit. And all of a sudden he goes, man, you and I are like exactly the same. I can't believe we're like exactly the same. And I hit stop. I go, don't fucking ever say that to me again. Because when you were winning six fucking Grammys, I was lugging SVTs through snowbanks in Wisconsin. I said, we're in the same room now, but the path I had to take to get here is completely different than the path you had to take. Don't ever say we're exactly the same. So did he, <laughs> he immediately laughing. ask you to have a drink when you first met, or was that something that came later? Oh, in back career? in those days, it wasn't even an ask. It was just, it was there, you know? Okay. And Luke's been sober for years. I'm, he's in great shape. He's really, really, I'm very proud of him. But anyway, so that's just kind of a, uh, the callback is I was in that funk band. And within a year, by the way, I was 17 and these guys were like 30. And within wow. a year, I'm kind of like the leader. I'm like writing the horn charts and, you know, learning all this shit. And the band kind of folded for whatever various reasons after two years. And I joined that. The next band gave me a gig. The next band gave me a gig. So I must have worked my way around five or six cover bands in the Lansing, Michigan area. And really good ones, really great musicians. And then I got offered, <laughs> I got offered to play with an Elvis imitator for another hundred bucks a week. <laughs> nice. So, so you took the I gig? went and did that. What's that? You took the gig? I, I took the gig, absolutely. I just play better for more money. I don't know That's what it is. There's something funny about it. Luke, how that Luke works. always used to say we'd do these Japanese records and they'd have this briefcase full of cash and he'd play this amazing solo in the control room and they all the Japanese would be clapping. He goes, You know, I don't know what it is. I just play better solos for cash. I just, I <laughs> something about it. That's something a great it. quote. That's <laughs> oh, Luke awesome. so much. He's, anyway, so I did this Elvis imitator, Johnny Spence, and then another Elvis imitator, Hyrus. Artie Mintz. 
So we went from Johnny Smith to Artie Matz to a third one, Frank Cruz. In a year, I did three Elvis imitators. And you think rock and roll is nuts. It's nothing compared to playing the Elvis circuit. These <laughs> fans are fucking crazy, okay? Anyway, that fell through. I went back and joined another band in Michigan, and we got some funding to go make a record in Chicago. So we drove down to Chicago. The big city, oh, my God, we're going to Chicago to make a record. This is crazy. So uh, a guy named Gary Loizo owned this studio called Pumpkin Studios. Well, Gary produced all those Sticks records, and they did them in Pumpkin Studios. So I walked in like, whoa, this is where they recorded, you know, I'm sailing, you know, and, and there's the roads they played Babe on. Oh, my God. Oh, nice. It's like crazy. So we, we tracked for four days there. And then on the fifth day, I had my Oberheim four voice and... I don't think I had my profit by then. Probably the Oberheim, the Minimoog, Clavinet, Rhodes. The SVT. Wurlitzer. <laughs> and the SVT. Two of them. Right. <laughs> and on the fifth day, oh, he had two days scheduled for synth overdubs. And he goes, let's just get it on a couple tunes, and you can come back in a month and, some, and do the rest of the record. Well, I did the whole record on the first day. I did all the synth overdubs on the first day. Sweet. So Gary Lewiso came walking out, and he goes, where the hell did you learn how to do that? I said, what do you mean? Well, overdub and get that fast in the studio. I said, oh, this is the first time I've ever been in the studio. And he's like, <laughs> wow. Okay. He goes, kid, you got a great future ahead of you. Give me your phone number. And so we went back to Michigan about six months later. He called me and left a message. And he said, there's a band here. The keyboard player's leaving and they're doing auditions. And I think you should come and audition for this band in Chicago. And the band was called Trillion. I remember the name of that band, too. They had a deal on Epic. Ed Cherney had engineered the record. I already knew who Ed was by just reading. We all read the cover notes back then, sure. liner notes. That's how we learned so much about that stuff. It's such a, That's a whole other conversation. But yeah. That's gone. It's such a shame. Well, so I went down there, and they had an OBXA on stage, gray one, which they sounded better. They had a different filter set. And there must have been like 43 keyboard players sitting out in this giant theater. And I was like, <laughs> 22, number 22. So they called me up there and I said, you know, guys, I've been listening to the auditions. I, said, I hate the sounds coming out of this thing. Can you give me like five minutes to program some sounds in this? They said, why, do you have one of those? I said, no. Well, how are you going to? I said, just give me five minutes. So I figured it out, programmed, saved the sounds. We played through three songs and the singer walked up to the mic and he said, the audition is over. <laughs> Wow. So I got the gig, went back, got a U-Haul through all my shit, quit the band, moved to Chicago. And by the way, the keyboard player that left the band was Pat Leonard, who came oh, out here man. to do the Michael Jackson tour and went on to produce Madonna and be fabulously su successful. Right. But I think he thought the band was going to fold. And once I joined, we didn't fold. There you go. So anyway, but it wasn't, we weren't making any money. It was a really good rock band, but the, the deal fell out and... We went to a studio to cut some new tracks, and it was a jingle studio. And they said, you can only record at night because they do jingles in the day. And I said, well, who's, who works here? Well, this guy named Dick Marks. He's the king of all jingles. And I said, I'd love to come and see a session. So I walked in, and I sat, and I watched these session musicians. The guys sit down, piece of paper goes in front of them, and they count it off, and they play it. Hour later, they're out the door on the way to another studio. And I went, okay, I want to do that. I want to be a <laughs> session player. That's what I want to do. So I told the guys, I said, I'm going to be playing with you one day. And they, they looked at me like, because <laughs> at this point, I was probably 21, but I looked like I was 12. Right. And, you know, 108 pounds or whatever. Because you so, only look like you're 22 now. <laughs> oh, God, I wish. 
And so I, was, I started shagging sandwiches for these guys. I'd sit on the couch, and the reason I got to stay there is I was a runner. And I made a demo cassette and what I could do, and I'd sit on the couch waiting for Dick Marks to go by. And I'd go to hand it to him, and he'd wave it off. One day, he finally took it, and he called me for a session. And I played on a session, and I killed it, because I could read fly shit back then. <laughs> and uh, and for what we're walking people- out of the room, he puts his... What's that? I was going to explain what fly shit is. Is that that is fly shit's like the black page? Yeah, when you it's have the black so page. many notes on a page that yeah. it just looks like flies everywhere on it. There's more black than white. Yes, you know what I mean on the page. So we're walking out of the room, and Dick puts his arm around me. He goes, "I, I thought, boy, this, here we go with the speech." And this is back to the rejection thing that we were talking about. Yeah. Kid, you really suck today. <laughs> oh, man. I'm like, what? He goes, "But you're going to be great, and I'm going to stand behind you." And sure enough. I became the number one session player in about six months. I became the guy for the next eight years, first call session guy. In which Chicago. was tons of money. Sure. The checks would come in envelopes. We didn't even compare money. We compared postage. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wait a minute. The check was based on the size of the postage? Not the checks, stacks of checks from oh, a, here's the checks. state, here's 25 state farms, here's 32 McDonald's, here's residual checks. You know, the bass player would call up and he goes, 324. And I go, 561. <laughs> <laughs> oh! <laughs> so two things happened with all that bread. Well, first of all, it was the greatest training ground to be in the studio possible because you had to spit this stuff out in an hour. Sure. Right. And you'd never seen the chart before. And at 8 a.m., you're a country player. At nine, you're a jazz guy. At 10, you're, there's 30 pieces from the Chicago Symphony sitting there. You know, It was a hot seat. You could not fuck up because you'd be gone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 10 guys right behind you wanting that spot, obviously. Oh, so, yeah. There, well, yeah. There were, somebody said, like, what are you doing? I said, I want to be a session keyboard player. A, there's 34 guys playing keyboards in this town right now. I go, okay. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> and... I became number one. I, I, was, I was really quick, really fast. And I was really good with synths at a time when people didn't have good presets in them. You know, I can make good presets. Anyway, but the bread was amazing. And so what did I do with it? Two things. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say one of them was I bought synthesizers. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, no, three things, because I did another thing. I bought some stock in a company that was coming up that I thought was going to be really, really incredible. Because the CEO, I really liked him. And I liked what he was doing. And that was Apple. Mm, how did, nice. what, what happened with Apple? I haven't heard of them. Uh, <laughs> I, I think they're doing okay. So, so, so I did company, or something. Right? <laughs> I did two smart things with, with the money and one really bad thing for a couple of years. So let's just say it was the 80s. So <laughs> Which means moving what, on. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, we were doing six sessions a day, and then I'd go play five sets a night, and oh, then we'd come yeah. back and write until three in the morning. Yeah, you had to have some I mean, kind of juice God, to keep going. How we did it. Yeah, well, it was just so exciting, you know. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit to something that you, you sort of mentioned in passing there. You said about writing patches and things. Was that just from essentially starting with your mini Moog, that type of thing? Or where did sure. you develop that you had a talent for that or that you enjoyed doing it? It was the mini Moog. I mean, back then, most teenage boys had the Farrah Fawcett poster on their wall. <laughs> and I had the, the mini Moog poster. Love it. That's wow. all. And nobody listened to more music than I did. I mean, we all were sponges then, but that's all I did was, was listen to music. And this was at the time, by the way, when... 
Weather Report is coming out. Zap is doing his best work. Emerson, right. Lincoln, Palmer. Yes, Jethro Tull. Just deep, deep, incredible stuff. And I learned all that stuff. And a lot of it was very synth-oriented. So when I got that mini milk, I'd start twisting the dials. And it came with a pad of paper that was the facsimile of the front panel of the mini milk. Oh, so, so you, do the you take a pencil and march. And so I've still got the notebook. As a matter of fact, I'm going through stuff. My New Year's resolution was kind of go through stuff, which is a... It's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. I'll never get there. But, <laughs> but I did find the notebook with the many Moog patches on it. And I just had an ear. And I, I was always very techy and good with knobs and shit. And I was just was a natural at it. Yeah. Uh, that, that's fascinating. Because, I mean, that, that's something that, you know, I wanted to touch on. But might as well bring it up now. But today, when we're talking about, we're, Jody and I often spout here, like, know your gear and know what it's capable of. And I think, especially with so many soft synths and things available today, instead of players knowing what the synth is capable of, it, you end up like preset surfing. It's like, no, I don't yep. like that. I don't like that. But having a piece of gear and really knowing that inside out, how to dial up any sound that you want to make, have it to make, right, it is feels a little bit like a lost art to me. And, and you know why? Is because you had to. Because the, the yeah. presets, the presets right. sucked. You yeah. had to carve out something. Today, shit, I preset surf. When I'm trying to yeah. spit something out, get something, <laughs> a pad. What do you mean? There's 35 pads right there. I might right. tweak, you know, the filter and the, the, the attack and release and stuff or whatever, some modulation stuff. But you don't need, you don't need to do it the way you used to. Right. Well, yeah. And of course, you're mentioning the mini mode that there are no presets, right? This None. is like, this is, this is it. This is the sound that you got at the moment, right? So Yeah, you play the intro, then you go down to play the roads. And while you're playing the roads, you're dialing with your left hand the preset for the cool part that comes in on the chorus. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? I, it's fascinating. Do you have, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm completely going side taking a, a yeah, I still haven't here. finished my journey how I got to Toto, but that's, I could let's, be here for hours you know what? if you guys I, let I, me I, go, so don't. I, I'll shut up for a second, so <laughs> let's, get let's finish your, your journey. Oh, well, so Dick Marks was the guy, the Jingle King. Well, his son, Richard, I met him when he was 14, and he was singing on jingles, a great singer. And then when he was about 17, he, he was working on songs at night and doing demos and songwriting. This is something I knew nothing about because not a lot of people do that in Chicago. And he split, moved out to L.A., and the next thing you know, he's got a record that did really well. And it's a really good sounding record, and he's working with my idol musicians, Jeff and <laughs> Luke. And, oh, my God, I just thought, oh, I didn't get this good to make the – shrimp fly in the uh, red lobster <laughs> i got yeah. something else i could do with my talent i've got to get to and so i just harped on dick i said i gotta i gotta work with your son i gotta work on your son so he called richard and he says i got this guy here you should use on your record because richard was doing his second record and he said dad there's 135 keyboard players here that are geniuses like the last thing i need is some guy from chicago and he goes no this guy's special you should try him on something so Richard was on tour. He was at Pine Knob in, in Detroit. I drove to the concert, and we went in the back of the bus and talked. And I said, man, i got to play something on your record. He goes, dude, I got this song. It's not going to go on the record, sadly, but it's going to be something we're going to cut while we're there. And it might go in a movie or something, but it's too soft. It's too soft hmm. for what we're doing. He, gives it, he plays it, and it was the demo for Right Here Waiting. Oh, wow. And I go, dude, boy. don't give this to anyone else I know exactly what to do with this. So I did the demo 
and played it. Everybody flipped out. There were some people at the record company that were talking about putting drums on it. And when we do the real track and we get all the guys, and I'm like, no, 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 this is the track. And that's yeah. my track. That you're, The only thing on it that's not me is Richard singing. And Bruce Geich played a beautiful nylon solo, solo in the middle. But the rest is all me doing this alembic fretless, fretless bass on my S1000 oh, nice. and the strings and the all that. Anyway, gigantic number one hit. Yeah. My first song I did in L.A. So now the phone is ringing. It's like, is this Vanston? <laughs> yeah. This is Ramon. Phil Ramon. Oh, boy. Here's Desmond Child calling. Here's Ed Cherney calling. Here's Al Schmidt calling. So I just started doing sessions. I, I hit the ground running here and just five or six, 700 albums later, and that was my journey. Wow. wow. Quite the story that's right incredible. there. <laughs> yeah, that, that's... Uh... I've got another story to add to this. And Go this is the, this just to add the whole, the way things work together. And I hope you young kids out there are listening to this, because I talk, I talk to a lot of kids, you know, at NAMM shows and AES. And the one thing I say is, you know, you can practice your scales and you can practice your, your shit and get great at that. But the thing you really should practice is learning how to deal with disappointment and rejection. Yeah, very much and so. And that's really getting your head and, and how to be a diplomat and not say stupid shit in the studio and, you know, how to get along with all that kind of stuff. I'm always preaching about this. So the other thing I say is follow your instincts. you got to follow your instincts. So... I did a showcase at the Roxy with this guy, Tommy Funderburg. He was a background singer on Richard's record. And he was putting a project together called King of Hearts. And we played soundcheck at the Roxy. And again, my sounds were better than most guys' sounds. Sure. After the soundcheck, the sound guy walked up and he goes, who the hell are you? I said, well, I just moved to town. He goes, oh my God, my boss would fucking love you. I said, what's your boss's name? He said, Don Henley. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and Don Henley had just come out with End of the Innocence. <laughs> right, 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 right. And what I like about this is this isn't just like, I mean, there's an element of luck there, but it's the fact the guy heard me and said, this guy's great and Don would love him. So he gives Don my information. I get a call from Don's office. They're auditioning keyboard players for the End of the Innocence tour. <sighs> and that record was so ridiculously great. So I go and audition, and it's like the trillion audition. There's like 40 guys, you know, or whatever, and I get called back. And by the way, that, uh, that Bruce Hornsby song, uh, End of the Innocence, that kind of gospel shit, I grew up playing in church. I mean, that's just like second nature to me. Right. So I aced it, and I get called back again. Now it's 20 guys. Get called back again, it's 10 guys. I think there were four callbacks. And the last one, I think there were three of us. And before Don counted off End of the Innocence, he goes, you ready to do it, CJ? And yeah. He goes, count off. He goes, oh, wait a minute, Bruce. And I turn around and Hornsby's standing behind me. <laughs> and the drummer oh. goes, one, two. And it was just enough time for me to turn around and go, fuck you. And then I, <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. I just thought, fuck you for standing behind me, man. And of course, the way I'm wired, I'm now going to jam this so far up your ass. Sure. You know, I'm just going to play better because you're standing behind me. And I did. And so I, I got called about a week later. Don wants you to go on the tour. You got the gig, but there's one stipulation. We're going to hold that for one moment, and we're going to take a quick word from our sponsors. And we're back. We're still talking with C.J. Vanston, and we're going to go right back into what is the one stipulation that he had? Don Henley, I passed the audition out of all the guys after four callbacks, and his office called up and says, Don has chosen you to be the keyboard player for the next world tour. And uh, one stipulation, though, is Don wants you to shave your beard. Oh. I said, hmm. 
I'm sorry? That, yeah, he wants you to shave your beard for the tour. I said, for like a photo shoot? No, for the whole tour. He wants you to keep your, your beard on. I said, you know, I might wake up someday and look in the mirror and say, you know, I think I'll shave my beard today. But I'm certainly not going to shave my beard because someone asked me to. I said, no, I'm not doing that. He said, well, this is a stipulation of the gig. I said, yeah, I'm not shaving my beard. Because I knew they were going to call oh, wow. back. I was still going to get the gig. I knew I was going to get it. Right. Hung up. Never heard from him again. Oh, wow. I didn't get so the he gig. was actually very they serious about it. He was very serious about it. Anyway, I didn't hear back from them, and I didn't get the gig. So three weeks later, remember uh, Katie Seagal from Married with Children? Of course. Yep. Right. Yeah. Short interjection a- real quick. Her husband, Jack drummer. White, the drummer, yeah. was the guy that gave me my first chance in L.A. Wow. Yeah. Full circle. Full circle right there. So, yes, Katie Seagal works is a very lovely town. lady, by the way. Lovely lady. So, anyway, she's at a party and is talking to Don Henley. And he said, she says, uh, I'm forming a new band. I lost my musical director and keyboard player. Do you know anybody good? He goes, I know a guy that's great. He just has an ugly fucking beard. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Katie calls me. Out of the blue, I get a phone call from Katie Seagal. I'm doing this band, and I'll send you a cassette, and could you write the charts and do demos on this stuff, and then we'll have a rehearsal with the band. So I spent a couple weeks doing all that, and by then, I was a track guy. I was using a DP, by the way, back then. when I, Right here, Waiting was done on Digital Performer. There you go. I, yep. started, I started with Studio Vision, okay. which was mm. awesome. That was still one of the best DAWs ever. Anyway, so I demoed all the songs up. And rehearsal, I had an office at Sunset Sound at that time. And rehearsal, uh, she says, I'm just going to send the drummer over and you guys can kind of go through stuff. Door opens. It's Russ Kunkel is the drummer. Heard the name. Well, she's recorded on more records than probably everyone except for Hal Blaine. And that's probably it. I mean, the guy played on Tapestry. Mm. Unbelievable. He walked in and, hey, wow, wow, Russ, nice to meet you. Well, what do we got? And I said, I played a couple songs. And I put the charts in front of him. I always took pride in how I wrote my charts. I try not to do a lot of DSs and repeats and weird, you know, right. codas and stuff. So he, he waves his hand. He goes, stop, stop, stop. I go, what? And he goes, what am I listening to? I said, well, that's the demo. He goes, I know, but where'd that come from? I said, I did that. And he goes, yeah, but who's playing bass? I said, I did that. You played bass. I said, no, that's on keyboard. Well, who's playing drums? I said, that's me. You play, I program that. Yeah, but what? I said, Russ, I did. That's all me. And he goes, who wrote these charts? I said, I did. He goes, okay. I got two guys I got to introduce you to. And he introduced me to, one was Greg Ladani, Toto's producer. Right. And the other was Christopher Guest. Oh, there you go. Nice. Yeah. And that's where my first one-nighter with Spinal Tap started. It was only supposed to be one night. And I just said, when I was programming my patches, learning the songs, Nobody else is ever going to play with this fucking band again at keyboards. <laughs> I wanted that gig so badly. You're not going to be and like of course the I went, <laughs> And of course, I went on to score all Chris's movies after that. But anyway, if I had taken the Henley tour, and from what I heard about the tour is three in the morning, you get pages of notes under the door. Measure 16 of song four. You played, you went off the, you didn't play the next night. Notes under the door. I, I mean, I guess it wasn't oh, a really geez. fun tour. Right. Wow. In the meantime, I still got my ugly fucking beard <laughs> and I'm working with Toto and Spinal Tap. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Worked out in the end, yeah? That's what I'm saying, kids. Stick S- to your guns. Speaking of what? Spinal Tap, 
there was a night hanging out at Cafe Cordial where Greg Bissonette showed up and he and I were kind of friends and he had mentioned he just came from a session working with you mm-hmm. doing drums for Big Bottom. And then you showed yep. up a little bit later and started talking to me about how you were tracking toms for Big Bottom and then you took that track, duplicated it and ran it through a octave situation to bring it down even lower and layer that Mm -hmm. in with the drums, the extra toms to get them super beefy for big bottom. (laughs) As you do. As you do. Yeah, we we recut the original album so we could retain licensing for them and use them for different applications or whatever. But we had some fun at the same time. That's why Mm -hmm. I tried the octave down on the toms and did some really fun stuff. We did it at Village D and Ed Cherney was the uh, engineer. Amazing wonderful guy we miss him so dearly they decorated the whole place with the uh they had the british flag and uh, all this tchotchke everywhere it was really fun but uh i remember i got did an interview with mix magazine and they said if i was trying to get a, a modern sound with the spinal tap or a vintage sound i said well <laughs> i'm doing both because i recorded to tape for the vintage sound but then i transferred it to Pro Tools and back just to get that modern hashy sound. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got, Ouch. you know, one leg in each, uh, you know, and different pair of pants. Right. So That's our segue, I guess, that kind of, because you mentioned Pro Tools there somewhat in jest, but you are a Logic user and you mentioned uh, Digital Performer before. So And Studio when did you, Right. And what, what was your... That transition that led into Logic, and when did you jump on board on that? And you know, why, I'm not perhaps? even sure why I went to Logic from DP. I can't really remember, but I just knew it was getting a lot of attention, and it was a learning curve because Logic was not easy back then. It was very difficult, but I kind of lived for that shit. But uh, <laughs> you know, DP now is is awesome, and Logic is awesome. And there's a few others. There's Bitwig is another one that's really getting a lot of attention. Of course, you can go over to uh, Ableton Live. That's a different paradigm. That yeah, doesn't right. belong in the same category because it's not. It doesn't work as well linearly. Uh, it's a really good modular kind of uh, with the clips and everything like that. It's interesting but, uh, you say that. And I just want to interject and kind of pose a little bit something here. A bunch of years ago, when I was doing a lot of live stuff using backing tracks, my drummer who is now the head of education for Guitar Center, was endorsed by Ableton. And we were trying to do some of my tracks, putting in into Ableton so he could trigger stuff. Like we had sections. And if we wanted to repeat a section, it would just repeat exactly. it. If he wanted to trigger the next section, we'd do it. But that stuff that I was doing at that time was not all in 4-4. And Ableton was only capable of doing 4-4. Ah. And so... We were able to finagle it to do stuff that wasn't in 4.4, but he went back to the guys at Ableton and literally said, hey, this is what we're doing. Please change this. And I guess the next right. version that came out allowed for you know multiple time signatures and all Well, that. the fact that it only worked in 4.4 says a lot about the program. Sure. It, it's, it's a really modular pop based mm-hmm. for doing things where the same section repeats, but it's a little different this time, which I love. I love working on that kind of format. But for the bulk of the work I do, that's that's just not what I'm going to be working on. My thing with Logic is it's a musician's tool. Sure. And same with DP is a musician's tool, and Bitwig is a musician's tool. Uh, Personas has got a really nice dot. It's yeah. a Studio musician's one. tool. Yeah. Studio One. But to me, Logic has the most comprehensive native instruments built into it. Where yeah. I don't have to use third-party shit with a 
fucking Iloc. Please <laughs> get that thing off the planet. Oh, the worst thing in the world. Someone stole mine, and and I called up the manufacturers. They're like, yeah, sorry. Oh, we yeah. can't really give you another license. So, you know, really? there's 12 grand worth of, pl worth of plugins. Yeah. I, I won't use anything with an iLock anymore. So, oh, yeah. but anyway, I mean, my God, the plugins that come with Logic, the, the, just the stock compressor sounds about as good as anything you can get out there. Yeah. It doesn't Confirm. look like the Neve, Neve front panel. No. It doesn't look like the API, right. but it, it sounds as good to me. And of course, all the, the multi-band compression and the, the tape delays and the the reverbs, the, the IR reverb, the basic one that's built with it. And it's so efficient. You can have so many instruments open and it's because it's all native to Logic, which yeah. is Apple running on an Apple. Right. So and there's so you your dongle right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's your computer. And you know, these guys that are using Pro Tools, like, hey man, don't up update to Catalina, whatever you do, you know, you gotta wait like a year. It's like, oh my God. And for years I'd go to guys' houses, they'd have this $60,000 rack of hardware. And we put up like four instruments and it's cacking out. Yeah. I'm like, I, I load up like 30, 40 instruments in Logic on a 2009 Mac Pro. <laughs> but not, and now Pro Tools has come up, uh, it's, now it's operating native and everything. But just the MIDI and instruments built in, it is an engineer's tool. That was built as an engineer's tool, the same way Ableton was built to be a 4.4. You know, it, it's great for engineers. And if I'm sure. recording a tracking date, I'm, I'm going to have my guy use Pro Tools because that's what works with the, you know, the, the take folders, not take folders, but the... Uh, Playlists. Right? Playlists, yeah, those yeah. are great. But if you're doing anything, if you're a keyboard player, a guitar player, a singer, anybody that knows anything about music... I don't know why you'd ever use that program. I, I, it just, it baffles me. I see guys <laughs> working in it and they're just, they're laboring so hard. I go, and then they come to my studio, they go, what'd you just do? So well, I just threw the, hey, can you do that again? And then by the way, they see the, the take comping, mm. the swipe comping. Yes. Yeah. That blows their mind every time. That, that alone is worth the price of admission. It is and a then, very nice feature. It's two hundred dollars, yeah, ladies and oh, gentlemen. But wait a minute. So when did you start using Logic? I'm assuming you did it before Apple actually bought them. Is that correct or no? Yes. Okay. Yes. So you remember what it used to cost because it was not two hundred dollars back in and the you day. You had to add on the little. You'd buy this, and they came in these big bookshelf kind of. Oh, you know, I still have these. those. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> But I mean, it was a grand oh, for the program, and then like each plugin that you had to buy was like several hundred dollars. Like, come on! Oh but, yeah, you know, Apple the sampler. You had to buy the the EXS twenty oh, four yeah. sampler was yeah. separate. Yeah, yeah and that's it. by the way still the most efficient sampler there is. I mean, I hate working with that contact. Uh, it sounds great, but the thing is, just the interface is so awful. It's a five point font for some reason. It doesn't matter. Luckily, I'm <laughs> I'm old and I still have good eyesight, and I still, it's just not a good. GUI, you know. Sure. Yeah. Understood. I get yeah. it. I understand. Yeah. You know, yep. Chris, yep. I'm wondering, is this a slap in the face to you since you just really wanted to start learning Pro Tools recently? <laughs> no, it, it was more, I, I'm a little bit of a uh, masochist in some way. And it, it's it's not that at all because I'm still firmly planted in the logic thing. Well, but also it, the thing more, is you, you, you're working with other people from all over the world that are sending you tracks. And I know that's what you do. I know how to use Pro Tools sure, and I've yeah. got a you know, LE version or whatever, so I can throw tracks up. But anymore, I'm like, just send me stems starting from bar one. Gotcha. But I'll yeah. tell you what, I'd say at least half the time, maybe three quarters of the time, I get tracks from an engineer from Pro Tools. Yep. Mm -hmm. And he, he didn't bother to put the BPM in. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. that's like so like. It's <laughs> unbelievable. It is. It's yeah. crazy. So that just shows you it's someone that's not thinking music musically, you know? Sure. Yeah. And yeah, it's anyway. Yeah, that's what something that, of- that, that that drives me crazy because I've, I've had people when, and then they call me in a panic and say, well, how, how do I do this in Logic? I said, well, should we just sync to the BPM? Well, I didn't set a BPM when I started recording. So, well, well, then you're on your own. Or it's yeah. the, uh, you know, but, you know to, to just wrap up the, the Pro Tools things. For me, it's more just one thing that I just feel like I want to be relatively fluent with it. Mm-hmm. And sure. there's just that, right? So it's uh, so I can pat myself on the back and say I'm, I'm comfortable but, with that But if well. you're in, in Sweden on tour and you want to write a song in your hotel room, you're booting oh, up yeah. Logic. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I when I open my door in the morning, it's logic. You know? so, <laughs> that yeah. sounds like an apocalypse now reference. When I open my door in the morning, it's logic. <laughs> <laughs> Smells like logic. That's right. <laughs> have you tried Luna yet? Or are you not working on a? No, UA? I have not, uh, and that looks really interesting. It looks like a really nice box, and I like the people over there, Universal Audio. Sure, really good mm-hmm. people. They're really doing some good work. I'm looking in your studio that you have there at home, and I see something just behind you on the side there that looks like a control surface. It what is. What control Mackie surface control. are you using there? So, so now this is an interesting question. You know, I do a fair amount of these interviews or podcasts and things, and one thing that, that the more uh, nerdy, no offense, but mm-hmm. you already did it to me, so now we're even, they always say, what's your favorite piece of equipment what's your, or your most used? Right. And it's hands down... My Mackie control surface. Okay. Period. I could live without, and I've got these Focal speakers, but JBL sent me these amazing speakers, and I've got these PSI speakers at my studio. They're mind blowing. I could rotate out of all those, but I could never work without this. So, this thing basically is in, I mean, it's a movable control surface. It memorizes it, right. but it's in touch mode all the time. This is what I don't see guys doing. Mine is in touch mode all the time. So, for instance, doing the Toto record. And I've got this great singer, Joseph Williams, my God. He'll, maybe he'll do four passes. And I tell everyone to take, take a break. And half an hour later, I've comped a vocal together. And I ride it. I put in the ride. Right. Which most guys only wait until the end of the record to do. Well, you're going to listen to the fucking vocal a thousand times. <laughs> and you're going to yeah. hear this word popping in, this word. You want to play to, so I get the ride right in there. When Luke does a guitar part, I'll ride that guitar part, get that set in, you know, pan it out at this spot. The production's going. So when it's, you know, it's time to mix, the thing used to be, okay, it's time to mix. And you see the guy grabbing all the faders and, and pulling the faders down. It's like, no, no, no. When in Logic, you know, with this Mackie controller, when it's time to mix, it's like, okay, what do you got? Okay, well, I don't, I'm missing that word. Okay, boom. Okay, what else you got? No, no. Okay, cool. I could use a little more. Okay, boom. So it's really mixing has turned into a very small task compared to what it used to be for me because of this thing being always in touch mode. Yeah, right. Well, the interesting thing about that is last week's episode was actually about control surfaces. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you another thing I like about this one. There's some really nice control surfaces out there, but this thing, there was I've got the black one also that came mm-hmm. before this. It that was, was the logic one, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly right. This one is the metal one. Right. And it's a tank. So when you reach over, it's not something you're going to push. It, it's sitting there. So it's, it feels a little bit like a console, and it's just a great, great piece of gear. So a nice tactile feel when you're working. Yeah. Yep. 
Awesome. So yeah, cool. I've got one here and I've got one in my other studio. What I was saying, during COVID, I built a, a studio in my house and I've got a, I've got a 2,000 square foot studio. Uh, I can see it out this window. It's two miles away. But, oh, so it's fairly um, close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's nice having this to kind of just, when I want to work on stuff in the morning, I got a Mac mini with the M1 chip and and I got a uh, a rack of four four terabyte SSDs. Woo! In this oh, little yeah. sexy. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a rack. It's got to be the size of, uh, you know, four packs of cigarettes. Right. Right. Yeah. Thunderbolt. Throw it in your carry on. And you got and, everything uh, with you. I've, yeah, and I've got a little uh, little uh, kind of Pelican that's got because there's an, an internal two terabyte in the uh, Mac Mini. I've got five little Western Digital USB C drives. Mm -hmm. They're lubed mm -hmm. together. And one cable, put it in, do your backup, and then I, I keep it in the. Uh, well, I've got a Tesla, so I keep it in the front trunk. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should the cut front. that out so somebody yeah. doesn't bust into your Tesla. <laughs> right. yeah. It's all it, it's all encrypted. That's okay. Okay. And I, by the I, way, I, if they want this shit, they can have it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to ask you because I have yet to get a good answer from somebody on this. With the M1, the the RAM that you can load in those is relatively limited on the yes. initial versions. How does that handle if you have your sample libraries on an external drive? Because th that was the big thing, like usually when you, you're dealing with RAM, right? that, that's where samples would be loaded into RAM. And I know there's that shared memory thing, but I believe that's only on the internal. So w what's your experience with that? Well, it's only 16 gig of RAM and, you know, I plugged it in and I never noticed it. Never thought about it again. So well, streaming straight enough. from, so, well, you've got SSDs that you're tied into, so it's probably, it's like streaming straight from it's RAM just almost not, exactly. It, the They're, way it's using RAM, I don't know what's going on. I never thought about it again. It's worked like a charm. Okay. It's been great. But, but do you but you keep your sample libraries on an external or do you keep it on the internal? Oh no no external. My okay. way too big. Way no, too big. No, that's what I figured. But yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. Matter okay. of fact, I've got my four SSDs. One is now it's music five. I've had through my logic career, I've had music one, two, three, four, and now I'm music five. And basically they're each about I think they're about two or three terabytes each. And then music, I've just started Music 5. So that's my, my, my logic projects. Right. The second drive is, I call it Visuals. So that's got all my Final Cut stuff, all my photo libraries, all my uh, archive photos, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, the third drive is Orchestral Samples. And, mm. the, and the, I mean, the third one is Orchestral Samples. And the fourth one is All Other Samples. Gotcha. Which would be okay. guitars. I've got a lot of guitar, great guitar libraries. Right. And, right. Favorite Sweet. orchestral library that you reach for first? Which one? Which one is your yeah, favorite? What, what's your favorite uh, orchestral library? It's uh, what, Spitfire what stuff. Yeah. The Spitfire stuff. Okay. I right. mean, I, li I like the Vienna stuff, but it's, you know, you got to buy their stick for it. Right. It's like their, their own version of an iLock. And it's like, you get stuck somewhere without that thing and you're not, you're not going to work. Right. right. So uh, the, the Spitfire, they have a really nice interface. Uh, a lot of companies are doing this now where you use their little program that shows you all the libraries you own. Native Instruments has a very nice version of that. The Spitfire stuff is just beautiful. Yeah. So, okay. But, you know, uh, there's a string sound in uh, Omnisphere, which is my go-to before any other synth. That is just the most ridiculous synth ever built. Wouldn't that be and alchemy? It's called <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Alchemy's got its uses. 
which, which is now owned by uh, Apple. Apple, yeah. It's yeah. Part of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Omnisphere, I mean, uh, Eric Persing's brilliant. His whole team over there at Spectrasonics do an amazing job. But anyway, there's a string patch called Hollywood Strings that's just, it's just awesome. I do love it's that It's great patch. for pads. Yeah. It's just for pads. It doesn't have all the key switching and shit, but... Yeah, so the Spitfire stuff is really good. good. Well, you, you're managing to actually answer a lot of the questions that I was going to ask you <laughs> in just free flow, but, but that's good. One thing I wanted to touch on. Karnak. How did you know? No. Um, you Obviously, you said that you have a, a fairly extensive synth selection or keyboard selection at this point. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you still own that. But when it comes to working with Logic, do, do you – What's your mindset there? Do you like to go the hardware thing if you have the option, or is it just like you feel like it's such a streamlined workflow that you tend to go with something in Logic when you're trying? It's to about ninety-five percent Logic now. Okay, and I've got you know I've got this beautiful Oberheim four voice. That's that's the Mac Daddy in my studio. Nothing sounds bigger than that Oberheim four voice. Matter of fact, I had some kid interning for me. And basically, the Oberheim 4 voice is four discrete synth modules sitting in front of you. And you can play and you can fire them continuously, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, or one, 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 one. When you add two notes, it's two, two, two. So since they're all knobs, you can't get them exactly the same. Sure. So when you play, it's like an orchestra kind of feeling because each one's a little bit different. Or you can force one to have a band pass filter, or the other's got a high pass filter, and get these weird combinations. But the other thing you can do is put it in unison mode where it's all four modules. And you get a bass sound with that thing. And I've got these 18-inch uh, Tannoy Pumas up on the wall. <laughs> and I put it in unison, and I told this kid, I said, hold that low note and open that filter. And he did, and he, he started crying. <laughs> <laughs> because there's nothing that can prepare you for that, you know? So, yeah, uh, that's a great synth, which uh, at this point, I rarely use these things. I wish I did more, but I'm always working so fast, and the shit sounds so good. But I've got that. I've got a Jupiter 8, rolling Jupiter 8, Prophet 5, Alesis Andromeda, and the Juno 106, rolling Super Jupiter, uh, Sequential Circuits, Prophet VS. These are pretty, that's a pretty rare instrument. And of course, I've got a completely cherry vintage 1957 B3 with two Leslies, mm. both Oof. with Spinal Tap logos on them, oh, signed by all better. the guys. <laughs> uh, I've got an absolutely cherry road. Well, I've got three roads, but the, my 88 suitcase has been gone over. It's as good a roads as you can play anywhere in the world. And I've got a beautiful Wurlitzer. So those three make up kind of my, that's about the only mechanical stuff I own. I'm sorry. I have a Yamaha CP70 also. Uh -huh. And that's in, Jody, you've been there. That sits yes. in the control room. And the CP70, for those of you who don't know, it actually has strings on it. It has a harp that it has a keyboard with the hammers and everything. It's two pieces. You drop the, the harp on top and vertically, and then you hinge it down and clamp it down. And now the uh, hammers, the keys are actually connecting with, with uh, strings. But there's no soundboard, so it doesn't really make a lot of noise. You plug it in, that becomes the soundboard. But... It's a great songwriting instrument because you can hear the instrument in the room. You don't have to turn power on, and it's small enough. So the CP70, the Wurlitzer, the B3, and the Rhodes are the. That's about all the mechanical stuff I do. I don't. I've never gotten into having Mellotrons or, right. or things like that. Yeah. Now you mentioned the Roland. You had a couple of Roland synths. Have you tried the Roland Cloud? versions of those things yes it's amazing so you're yeah. okay with like saying you know what the mechanical thing can sit to the side i'm going to use this 
plug-in version. For the most part, yeah. If I know if I got into some really deep electronica project, I would pull that stuff out. Mm -hmm. But for most pop records I'm doing, I just I really getting enough juice out of this stuff. It really feels good, and it's mostly that Omnisphere. Right. I, mean, okay. I must have thirty or forty different other synths plugins. Jeez, yeah. yeah, atmosphere. What else do you need? It's great. <laughs> I think that's the way Chris feels about alchemy. Um, I, I do like alchemy. Yeah, I do like. Oh, alchemy's great. Yeah, the only I hate to say knock because that it makes it sound so much more negative than I intended. My knock sometimes on the spectrosonic stuff is for sort of like their patches sound so big. Like and sometimes that's fantastic, right? But it's like, well, good luck using that in a song. Type of it's thing. a really good point, Chris. So it's a really, really good point. Th that's that. But I feel the same way. In all fairness, about just about any software synth that you get, because it, it, you know, you press one key and it sounds like a fucking Vegas casino, right? And <laughs> yeah. it's like, but it's just showing off what, what what the synth can do, and it's like, hey, look, we can do this, and we can modulate this, and we can do whatever, right? But to kind of backtrack this to what we talked about earlier, learning how to dial in patches and things and knowing how to work your gear to kind of scale this back and, and quickly tweak something that will work for your track, I think is, is imperative in those cases. But mm -hmm. I do love Spectrosonics, but I, I, the only product I own from theirs at this point is uh, RMX, which actually still gets some use from me. So I, Oh, I, RMX is great. I just, you know, I'm bummed they didn't continue putting out libraries for that. Exactly. Yeah. It seems yeah. really weird great that they shit. It's awfully weird. Cause that wow. was a. It was so great with the slice, uh, the slices where you could replay those loops in any order. It was a brilliant piece of software. Yeah, it's like they gave up on it or something. Well, they still do updates for it. They just didn't add anything to it. Yeah, but I mean, how, how, how many of those loops have I used through the years? Every one of them. I, yeah, <laughs> probably. I think we all have. Yeah. Yeah. But they really, they really fucked up the sounds. You know, I mean, there's drum sets that are just mangled. It, that would take you an hour to sit and do that. Sure. Yeah. Really, really cool. And I think the um, just the cinematic hits and things that they have like that for, you know, they got their whooshes and their big tower booms and all this kind of stuff mm -hmm. and pitch shifting those guys and, and mangling them further and stuff. It, I sure. think it still sounds great. So Yeah, um, unfortunately, the, mo the movies I score, I got a... Uh, I got pigeonholed into being a comedy guy uh -oh. because of uh, Waiting for Guffman was what got me in that lane. And then we did Mighty Wind after that. Right. Which is a and that was a folk movie. movie. Yes. Yeah, great. But, you know, and that, which took, you know, over a year working on that thing with auto harp lessons for Catherine and guitar lessons for Eugene and a lot of work. But it wasn't as much <laughs> sound design scoring, sure. typically, that kind of stuff. Sure, yeah. yeah. One thing I'd like to pop in with here is that you and I once had a conversation sitting in your studio about guitar. And I know you're mm -hmm. not necessarily a guitar player, but we had interesting observations about it. And I think the reason was, is because I like full versed in the whole amp sim thing and the IRs and using that thing. And you had mentioned that with some guitar sounds that you were familiar with, what you had recorded or people were would think is the greatest guitar tone in the world is literally the guy plugging straight into the board, not even going through an amp. Yep. And that brought up a conversation between us where it's like you and I have a similar view in that it doesn't matter how you got to the sound. It's whether or not the sound works for the song and you're done and ready to go. hundred percent. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Luke didn't want anything to do with, you know, he'd show up with his Bogners and, uh, and his, you know, he's got the cool, he used to have a big Bradshaw rig, but then now it's the foot pedals. And I said, man, just let, just let me plug you right into my universal and, and take you through guitar rig is what I was using then. Right. And so we needed to part for the chorus. And I said, just start playing. And I'm going. <laughs> and he's like, no, what, what, what was that one back there? I went back. Yeah, that's cool. Get rid of that delay. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's put that down. And we started doing that. And he's like, man, I fucking love doing that. And I said, yeah, and we can go back. And tweak the sound later. Yeah. Right. Once you get your shit down, you know. And, and it, Baxter, I just finished a record with Jeff Baxter, Skunk. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! And he's hooked on it. He loves it. Yeah. It's like being so. a kid in a candy store again, because <laughs> you yeah. got unlimited yeah. potential with it. And plus, the thing that's cool is I'm driving the bus while they're playing. Sure. All they're doing is sitting and noodling, and I'm the one changing the sound. <laughs> they really like that. Both of those guys really like that. Yeah. So nice. And they're both pretty good guitar players. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Yes. yeah. I'd like to ask on that, with because you have a fair amount of production credits, obviously, to, on your resume here. When you're working with, you know, you mentioned Skunk Baxter and, and the Toto guys and, and people like that or that caliber, how do you feel like you're producer role changes when you got that caliber of players is it more of do you feel like you're still hands-on or do you feel like hey i'm just going to take a step back and and let these guys do what they do type of thing well it's a little of both but you know a lot of it to me is especially with somebody like luke who Mm -hmm. can play anything right i mean they asked eddie van halen once what's it like being the greatest guitar player in the world and he said i don't know ask steve luke there (laughs) and you know eddie was so obviously great at what he did but could he put up pick up an l5 and play you some howard roberts shit sure. could he pick right. up a, a nylon and do some malaguena whatever you know luke can do all that so i guess what i'm saying here you got a guy with an unlimited palette unlimited chops and he can go a million different directions so to me i'm like hey wait whoa 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 that was cool before you were doing that that's too much it sounds good by itself it doesn't work with the track so here here yeah, try that try that okay cool yeah yeah so definitely, it's a working right elbow to elbow. Okay. I'm, very rarely am I sitting back, right. not saying much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So is no, it kind of like traffic cop situation? That might be it, but it just or a, a cheerleader going, no, no, dude, that's killing. Oh no, no, shut up, shut up, play that. Here, I'm hitting record. <laughs> Go. Yeah. Oh, you know, I just wanted to ask because I think that that would be. I think a lot of people would feel envious of that situation you know when you just when you're in the room with, with certain mm-hmm. caliber of talent where you you might not necessarily have to coax a performance out of somebody if you will mm-hmm. right it's just there it's more like almost sounds like you're for one of a better phrase like limiting ideas no 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 no. go back to that one that was awesome already that the type of thing and it's like, well, how especially about this? players like like this that have played on so many great records in some ways i know them in a way they don't know themselves sure right so I've, I've got a valid point of view, and I've spent my life in the studios with the greatest guitar players, the greatest musicians in the world for the last 40 years. You know, I've been spoiled with it. I mean, I was thinking of making a list of, the, this is my drummer list, this is my bass player list, my guitar <laughs> player. Just, it's, it's the who's who of, I was lucky enough to be here for, in L.A., for the, the end of the session world, the session musician yeah. world. And I did that for 
you know, a good 20 years where we were banging it out, sitting in the suit. You walk in one day and there, there's Kenny Aronoff and uh, Bob Glaub and nice. Dean Parks. And then you walk in the next day and it's Bissonette and Michael Thompson and Lee Sklar, you know, it's just, <laughs> those were every day. And by the way, the engineers were changing. It was Ed Cherney one day and it's Al Schmidt another day, oh, Umberto Gatica. And then the producer's changing. It's Phil Ramone. It's David Foster. And the studio's changing. You're working at AM, you're working at Capital, you're working at Village. So all these different ways of working that you're being exposed to, that's it, it, just gone. It's just gone forever. And I feel so badly for these kids that they're not going to be able to taste that because, you know, you learn so much about a different way to do things and cool ways to do things. But a lot of what I learned is how not to do things. Sure. Yeah. I've seen a lot of shit get fucked up when you've got the greatest musicians and a good song. And for some reason, the shit just goes left, you know? <laughs> and that's one reason, by the way, I became a producer because I thought, you know what? I would have known what to do in this situation. Right. So, yeah. Wow. It, yeah. Uh, that, that's awesome. That's awesome. Amazing stuff. A anything that you'd like to add here, Jody? Because I think we, we might have to let. Uh, no, because for me, here. I'd probably want to start reminiscing about other stories that I've had with CJ, and maybe that's yeah. not the thing to do well, now. <laughs> well, so maybe maybe we'll go into our, our last three questions here. What do you think, Jody? Sure. Let's do it. We like to ask three questions here that, that we sort of ask everybody that we have a guest. And I think, you know, some of this you've kind of already answered, but I'm going to ask them again. So favorite piece of gear that you can't live without? That's my Mackie controller. All right. Fair Isn't enough. That bizarre, and it, it's not a sound creation piece of gear. It's a harness the moment piece of gear. So, what better time to put a ride on the vocal than when you just listen to the guy do four takes and you just spend a half an hour comping it? That's when you put the ride in the vocal. You yeah. know, pull the fader down and do it later. That sounds like an Al Smith thing to do right there. Do it right he, now. He's doing it right yeah. as he's going. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and my uh, thing is right now. That's the thing that happens in my studio. Two things. When we were doing the total record and I said, you know, guys, I think now that we've done this vocal, let's redo the backgrounds. And I think it was Luke said, what backgrounds? I said, all the backgrounds. Well, what part? Well, the, the chorus, all the backgrounds. He goes, there's like 30 tracks of backgrounds. I said, I know. Dude, we just, I said, let's just do it. And so we argued about it for 20 minutes. <laughs> and finally I said, we got Joseph Williams sitting here. Get on the fucking mic. I said, by the way, the chorus is 12 seconds long. Okay, that's four <laughs> passes a minute. It took seven minutes. It took seven minutes to he redo all about it for 20. <laughs> and it was way better than the original. So when someone comes up with an idea in my studio, I go, shut up, get on the mic, go do it. Or grab your guitar, do it. Uh, let's not talk about it. Frank Zappa said, talking about music's like dancing about architecture, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. So <laughs> anyway. Awesome. You, you want to do the next one, Jody? Yeah. Biggest lesson you've learned in your career? Ooh. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is knowing when to keep your fucking mouth shut. And I'm not, still not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a diplomatic way to, to say stuff, uh, to say, you know, what if you... This chorus doesn't sound finished. What if we did, you know, and there's the singer with the guy from the label and there's the producer. There's a way of making them feel bad about that. And there's a way to do it. Maybe pull them aside or make them think it was their idea. There's a lot of diplomacy that's involved. And that's a lot of what I was saying about seeing people do things the wrong way. I worked with a, a lot of producers that were the, the, this was an old thing, was an old school tyrants 
mm-hmm. screaming and red faced and all this shit. And I just saw, saw how that never ever works ever. Right. And yeah. so learning diplomacy, I think the biggest lesson. And I, you know, I got chewed out a few times that I deserved it. So it's not yeah. a musical answer. <laughs> it's yeah. interesting. The yeah. best piece of equipment doesn't make music. Right. And the, the best thing I learned wasn't musical. There you go. But both of them go to making music. Exactly. Last question for you, CJ. What piece of advice do you universally give? I know this might feel similar to the previous question, but is there anything that you kind of give advice to people that ask? Yeah, because it's the same advice I constantly have to give myself, and that's know your value. Mm. Know your value. Know what you have to contribute. I think, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, which is one strike against you, where you're just taught to be... (laughs) You know, <laughs> be quiet and stand in the corner. And then from a father and mother who came from a depression era, parents yeah. who just be happy with your job, just get a job you hate and make sure you get money. And <laughs> so you're not supposed to go out and do what guys like us have done. And I believe when I hear people slagging on musicians, I step in, I go, hey, what do you do for a living? You sell insurance and you, you can make a budget. You know, your check and your 401k is exactly the same every week. We wake up every morning. We have no idea how we're going to make a living. And all we have to, for the tool to do it with is our heart, our talent, and our bravery. And musicians are, are some of the most brave people on this fucking planet. And uh, Here, here. I think, yep. And I think you need to know that about yourself. And people would always tell me, They'd say, you don't know how good you are, do you? And I'd laugh. Oh, shucks, G-I-G. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd realize, you know what? Whenever I walk up to that keyboard and play, about 87% of the time, probably more like 95, something really cool comes out because I've got that gift. I got given it and I earned it and worked on it. But to sell yourself short is such a crime and actually defeats the whole purpose of what you're trying to do as a musician. You're trying to be a conduit because... It's not me that's making that. It's the universe that I'm able to tap into, whatever that is. And so it's not egotistical to go, I'm fucking great at what I do. Roll the fucking tape and hit record now, (laughs) you know? As opposed to, now this guy, Dick Marks, I would do sessions and I'd play a part and I'd stop and I'd go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, roll it back, I'm sorry. And he got on the talkback once and he goes, kid, if I ever hear you apologize for your playing again, I'm firing you. Oh. I need to remember yeah. that one. Yeah. So no, that's know good. your that's value. Sage advice. Yeah. That's, know yeah. your value, man. You're there for a reason. And if you don't really have that value, then maybe you shouldn't be there in the first place, you know? So you got to know inside when you walk in the room. And that's what's so great about these guys like Luke and Baxter and Sklar. And, and they've been in the, they've got that confidence. You know, they've been doing it so long. They have that confidence. And I have that. But when you're first starting out, it's it's hard to develop that. And it's just really important to have that confidence in yourself, belief in yourself. It's almost a, it's almost, it's not a cocky thing. It's actually a uh, serenity. Mm. Right. It's, yep. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you for, for doing this. We really, really appreciate it, CJ. It's some amazing stories here. And uh, Oh, it's thank- just the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to leave you with one other thing. Going through, uh, and I, I told you earlier, I'm going through 
drawers and boxes of uh, unbelievable shit. Oh, here's a picture playing Red Square with Joe Cocker. Oh, that's cool. Oh, here's the playbill from Carnegie Hall with Spinal Tap. Oh, I'll put this <laughs> over here. Oh, here's, I mean, it's just unbelievable experience. Oh, here's me taking a nap with Dolly Parton on the couch. Uh-oh. I never looked through all this stuff. <laughs> I never looked through all that stuff and, and went, oh, wait, how much money did I make on that gig? How much did I make on that? Yeah. It's the experiences is what this whole thing is about, mm -hmm. is experiences. You got to make enough to pay the bills, but it's the beautiful experiences of being a musician, the travel to go with it, and the, the camaraderie and the brotherhood that you make from doing it is really the rich thing that you're going to take with you. Awesome. There's a second piece of universal advice right there. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't know I was so smart. Well, thanks, guys. <laughs> You're quite welcome. No, thank you for no. actually being on and doing this. Well, and you know, and, and just to close is just uh, in doing this, you make me remember things in the past, and it's it's good for me too. It no, makes it's me nice to hear. Go, shit, awesome. you know. Wow. Okay. I've done kind some cool. shit, right? <laughs> no shit. Yeah. No wonder I'm tired. You know, the, just to kind of think about the concept of the the confidence thing to cap that off. My first gig singing for someone else, unfortunately, was in your studio. <laughs> and I didn't have that confidence at that time. And no, I didn't. know that that came across because when Johnny spoke to me afterwards, it was kind of like, yeah, CJ didn't care for that. And I'm like, I thoroughly get it. And the interesting thing is, is that slowly as I started getting more gigs, singing for other people, doing that kind of stuff, it was always walking in the room, doing it and just knocking it out. But it was not that first time when we first met. And But I knew you had it. See, I knew you had it. And so you? this is exactly what I'm saying. Yes. Okay. Is you got in your own fucking way. You got in your own head and you got in your way. And that's a very painful thing to watch. And that's, that's a huge part of what we're doing here. Yeah, I, I understand. And the yeah. interesting thing about, yeah, if you ever worked with John Rod. No. Okay, he's a big-time mix and mastering engineer guy. No wonder I've never worked with him. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a gig in his studio singing on a video game, and I was duetting with another singer. They had to leave early, so they let her do all of her thing first, and then I came in and did my thing, and we did – we were third take in. He stops – and this is a guy that has like Evanescence, Michael Jackson, Green Day, all the huge bands, platinum records on the wall. And he says, what a pleasure it is to work with somebody that knows what they're doing. And I'm like suddenly just like, wait, what? <laughs> and yeah. my response to it was, is this not common? And he sits there in silence. And then he says, no comment. And then he turned back around and we got back to work. And that was that moment where I suddenly realized exactly what you were just mentioning a, a moment ago is you have to have that confidence. I was already at that point, at that point where I had that confidence. I could walk in, I could knock this stuff out and it was not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But know yeah, your value. That first, that first time in your studio was like, oh man. And you're right. <laughs> I did. I got in my head on that and I didn't think I was the right guy to do it. Well, I hope I wasn't a dick. No, you weren't a dick. It was just, I felt like I disappointed you. I know I disappointed Johnny and I disappointed myself by not doing a good job. But right. since then, it's become much better. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> know your value. And then, you know, the only way to know your value, you, you can't fake it. You've got to have the, the fucking goods. You've got to put in the 10,000 hours yep. and work on shit and listen and really hone your craft and get great at it. You can't 
The other side is the person that thinks they're, they're the shit and they got nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Chris, Jody, thanks a lot. All right. Well, shall we bow this now with the Friday finds? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Chris, kick it off. What do you got for us? Well, this week I uh, got an email that Stephen Slate Audio, not Slate Digital, but Stephen Slate Audio have released Trigger 2. And there is actually a free version of it available right now. So I downloaded it, tried it out, and I know Logic does this natively mm -hmm. where you, you know, you, you can extract the MIDI from a performance. But this is, it listens to the kick or the snare track or indeed any of them, any drum track in the full version. But in this case, you get a kick and snare and re either replaces or blends in with the original drum sets there. So that's my find for this Friday. Steven Slate Audio's Trigger 2. And if you act now, it's free. Sweet. What about you? I'm going with something that's more of a learn to do something better situation. I'm always in favor of that. Yes. And this is in regards to drum programming. And it is called Complex Drum Programming with Ned Rush. And this has been put out by Ableton. And he goes through explaining how to create very complex drum things so that your drums don't always sound the same, which means that when you're programming stuff, it's going to end up sounding human rather than loopy or computer. Sounds cool. If you don't very want good. That, if you want that human feel. So it is complex drum programming with Ned Rush. That is my choice for this week. Awesome. While we've got your attention and you've just listened to sage advice from CJ Vanson, we ask that you go to our website, InsideTheRecordingStudio.com, and sign up for our email list. Doing so gets you weekly reminders about the podcast and the Tuesday tips whenever they come out, and we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes. If you send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the phrase, Spinal Tap, you'll get something cool back in your inbox. And if you have a topic of suggestion for us to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page on the website and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. That, I'll say. See you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one, Jody. <laughs> <laughs>